Let's pray. Our Father, you are our King. And our desire this morning is that we will submit to your will and that we will be both your dutiful and your glad servants. We ask that you help us both to love you and to serve others with all diligence. We also ask that you will open our hearts and open our minds to your word this morning. And may your word impress itself upon us and make us glad to receive it and eager to obey it. And we ask that you give us the faith that we need to obey so. And finally, Lord, we ask that you will cause your kingdom to grow here at, kingdom, at Kenwood. Cause your gospel to go forth from us with boldness. And cause our efforts to bear much fruit in our communities. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you heard of John Harper, the hero of the Titanic? John Harper was a renowned evangelist, and he was traveling over on the Titanic to preach in Chicago when the Titanic struck the iceberg. Uh, when it struck the iceberg, Harper dutifully uh, got his daughter onto a boat so that she would be safe, but then he stayed back on the ship, and reports say that he went person to person sharing the gospel. One man, he came up to him, and this man rebuffed him and completely rejected the gospel, and reportedly Harper took off his life jacket and gave him his life jacket and said, here, you need this more than I do. Not long after, the Titanic went down, and then reports continue to say that Harper then swam person to person and continued sharing the gospel with them. One man who reported this was a guy by the name of George Cable. And George Cable says that Harper swam up to him and said, man, are you saved? And Cable said, no, I'm not saved. And Harper just quoted to him Acts 16, verse 31. And he said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And the current split them apart. And sometime later, Harper came back up next to Cable and he just said to him, man, have you believed yet? And at this urgent plea, Cable reports that God softened his heart and he believed. And not long after that, Harper, Cable reported, succumbed to the icy waters and drowned. So Cable, at a revival, called himself the last convert of John Harper. John Cable, or George Cable, was saved because John Harper gave his last dying breath to see that man come to know the Lord. Does your life match the urgency and the sincerity of John Harper? Do you persist with every breath in making appeals to your family, to neighbors, to coworkers, to those in your community to believe the gospel? We must urgently participate in God's saving mission. Please open with me to Colossians chapter 4. 
And it's here that Paul exhorts the Colossians church and us to urgently participate in God's saving mission. And he exhorts us and the Colossians to do that by committing ourselves to what we might call the trifecta of effective witnessing. What are these three things for effective witnessing? It's watchful prayer and it's wise deeds and it's grace-empowered words. The first two chapters of Colossians, Paul spends time talking about the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and his work on the cross for us and his sufficient salvation he's earned. And then it's because of Jesus' sufficiency that Paul turns in chapter 3 and commands the Colossians in verse 1 to seek the things that are above. And then he tells them in verse 3 of chapter 3 to find their life hidden in Christ because Christ is the sufficient one. And then throughout chapter 3, he tells them that they are to seek this spiritual life with Jesus through a word-enriched community and through rightly ordered relationships and through practicing reconciliation with one another and giving themselves to pure speech. And then in chapter 4, Paul climaxes his practical instructions with imperatives on both prayer and evangelism. In Colossians 4, verses 2 to 6, he commands the Colossians to pray on alert. That's verses 2 to 4, pray on alert. Then verse 5, he tells them to walk in wisdom. And then finally, in verse 6, he ends his practical instructions with the command to speak with grace. Speak with grace. So let's begin with Paul's command to pray on alert in verses 2 to 4. Here's what the text says. Look at it with me. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Prayer is infused throughout the book of Colossians. If you look back at chapter 1, verses 9 to 12, you'll see this beautiful model prayer from Paul where he prays for their growth in Christian maturity. If you turn back to chapter 4 and look down in verse 12, you'll see where Paul's co-laborer, Epaphras, likewise prayed for the Colossians that they would themselves stand mature before the Lord and that they would also have this a confident understanding of God's will for their lives. And so now Paul commands the Colossians to imitate him and to imitate Epaphras by devoting themselves to prayer. And Paul gives four directives for prayer here in verses 2 to 4. He commands them to pray persistently. And he commands them to pray watchfully. And they're also to pray thankfully. And finally, they're to pray missionally. So let's look at this first phrase, to pray persistently. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer. Paul regularly commands the early church to busy themselves in prayer. In almost all of his epistles, he has some phrase like, keep praying, never stop praying. He told the Romans, be constant in prayer. He also, in most of these letters, he would ask that those churches would also pray for his ministry. Again, he asked the Romans, or he actually commanded them, he said, strive together with me. 
in your prayers. Paul's numerous prayers for the churches and his examples of praying and his commands to pray shows that Paul understood that the success of any gospel enterprise, the success of any mission to the lost was dependent on faithful prayer. Here's how Luther talks about how we should persist in prayer. Martin Luther said, as it is the business of cobblers to mend shoes, and it is the business of tailors to make clothes, so it is the business of Christians to pray. And if praying persistently at all times is our business, it might be helpful for us to ask, how do we actually do that? I don't know if you've ever read some of these commands and felt a little mystified in terms of, well, what does that even look like? So here's just some practical advice. To begin with, pray persistently with the word of God open. One of the greatest helps to prayer that engages our mind is to have the word of God open and to pray through the word of God and to pray off of the word of God. If our Bible intake and our reading is ingestion, where we're ingesting spiritual food from the word of God, you might say that meditation and prayer are then where we digest that food. We fall short if we just read an intake and then do not give ourselves to praying the word that we have just ingested. We have to pray it to make sure we digest God's word. And so when we pray, we want to practice having our Bibles open and we want to read what the Lord has said to us and then we want to take what he said to us and we want to talk God's thoughts back to him and as soon as we're finished with our supplications and our intercessions to the Lord, we want to look back to the word to see what his answer is to us. So we want to pray with the word open. Next, pray persistently out loud. Now this might be an interesting practice to you, but when we pray out loud, it allows our minds to focus and it allows us to ward off distractions and it allows us to really not heap up empty, meaningless phrases. D.A. Carson, a, a a well-known New Testament scholar, he reports that his dad was a Baptist minister, and every morning in their home, his dad would go up to his study upstairs, and D.A. Carson could hear him every morning praying out loud to the Lord for 30 and 45 minutes. So I want to encourage you not only pray with the word open, but pray out loud. And then pray persistently with a list. If you don't have a prayer list, I want to encourage you to make one. And you should put your personal prayer concerns on that list. And you should put concerns for others, families, and neighbors on that list. And you should add unbelievers in your life for whom the Lord has given you a burden on that list. I'd encourage you to use prayers like Jesus' prayer in uh, Matthew 6, the Lord's Prayer. And let that guide how you pray for yourself and others. Or turn to the prayer in Colossians 1 here, 9 to 12. Put it to memory and use Paul's prayer for the church's growth and maturity to guide how you pray for yourself and how you pray for others. Uh, if you like to keep things on your phone, I'd highly recommend the PrayerMate app. This is an excellent app. You can look up on uh, timchallies.com. He's got instructions on how to use that app, but you can add list in there and edit it and add scripture. It's a really, really helpful tool and it'll even send you reminders it sends me a reminder every morning and it just says time to pray question mark and it reminds me that i need to pray if you make a list 
Well, what you're really doing is you're planning to pray. And you know what happens when we plan to pray? Well, we actually start being a praying people, a people who persist in prayer. And then another thought is to pray persistently with others. So I have a couple uh, regular prayer partners in my life. I pray with Bethany regularly, and then I pray with Chris Birch. Chris Birch and I meet about once a month, and we, we talk about how we're doing, and we always give time to pray together. And then I have a former coworker, Dan, and we just call each other regularly when there's a pressing concern, and we just pray for each other. And I can't, and then I, I pray every week with Matt and Jo and staff meeting, and we elders regularly in elders meeting, we pray for each other, and we pray for you all. And I can't tell you how helpful it is to pray persistently with others. As I pray with others and as they pray for me, I so often find that my anxieties quell, and my devotion to the Lord and my desire to serve the Lord swells. Persistent prayer, it, it, it's not going to give us a less busy life. We're going to have to fight and plan to pray persistently. But what it is going to give us is less busy hearts. Cultivating a, a lifestyle of prayer throughout the day is how we want to pray persistently, to pray throughout every hour and every minute and through every activity. My in-laws, I love them. They excel at this. When I was first dating Bethany, they'd really take me off guard because we would go to Maryland and visit, and they were asked how things were going. And I'd say, well, I've got this, this really big school project I'm working on, and I feel anxious. Okay, Lord, well, we pray for this work project, and we ask that you'll bless Randall, and you'll give him clarity and give him unction and give him a burden, and may he not fear man. And... And they, they just interrupt you, and you're just really taken back. It's, it's almost like they're prayer schizophrenics. <laughs> but that's actually really helpful, isn't it? Right? Because what they're doing is their minds, they're always operating in two realities at one time. They're operating in their reality, but then their mind's always tuned to God's reality. And it's by walking in both of these realities, by having their minds in two worlds at the same time, it, it enables them to cultivate this atmosphere and this lifestyle of persistent prayer. So I want to encourage you, you should have a time and place scheduled every day to pray with the word of God open. But you should also make a habit of talking to God frequently throughout the day, as if God's on the proverbial other line just waiting to hear for you. And you don't have to say a long prayer. You can just say a, a prayer in a breath and, or offer just a short bullet prayer and talk to the Lord. Okay, so we're to pray persistently. Paul says we're also to pray watchfully. Look at verse 2. He says, be watchful in it. Jesus warned us to be alert to temptation and even to fight sin with prayer. He told the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. He also taught regularly that we are to pray watchfully by being watchful for his return. In our prayers, we're to pray for him to return and to come and to set up his kingdom. So, for example, the parable of the ten virgins he ends the parable by saying, stay awake, for you do not know the day that your Lord is coming. And then both Paul and Peter warn us in our prayer to be alert 
to be watchful to the activity of Satan, reminding us that we're participating in a kingdom that's at war. And so we have to remain awake in prayer lest Satan get the upper hand. The other day, I, 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 was, I was tired, I didn't sleep well, and I was feeling a little irritable. And when I get irritable, one of the things I want is I just want some comfort food. And I, I just had this overwhelming desire to have some steak or to have some pastry or something. I told Bethany, I don't know what I'm going to do. I, I don't feel like I could be in a good mood unless I have some good food. Okay? Now, I know you guys don't feel this way. You're all, you know, excelling on Whole30 and all that, okay? But this, this, for me, I could not go and eat that comfort food by faith. In this sense, my flesh was warring against me. And so I just stopped and prayed. And I know this seems silly, but these are the kind of things we should be watchful about. And I said, Lord, help me not to give in to this desire. Now, I'll be honest, the appetites didn't subside, okay? I should not have gone grocery store, store shopping that afternoon. I would have spent way too much money. But what prayer did do is it increased my devotion and it increased my willingness to obey the Lord and my resolve to serve the Lord in self-control. Think about this in being watchful in prayer. How, what should we pray to be watchful in prayer? I think one of the great places to start is just the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6. Consider that the first three petitions are all about God's concerns and God's reality. He commands us to pray that God's name will be hallowed. He commands us to pray for God's kingdom to come. And Jesus commands us to pray that God's will will be done. And it's as we pray these things and as we're being watchful in prayer, praying for God's reality and God's concern and God's kingdom, that God actually begins to invade our prayer list. And we begin praying not only just for our concerns, but we begin praying about what God is concerned about. And we find ourselves aligning to God's reality. And as we align to God's reality, we're able to see it and we're able to be watchful. So we're to persist in prayer. We're also to be watchful. And then Paul says, pray, thankfully. So he commands that thanksgiving be attached to prayer. Gratitude is an essential part of the Christian life. Just look at Paul and his example in chapter 3 of Colossians. Look up at chapter 3, verse 15. And he says, this command, that command, and then he just throws in there, be thankful. Don't forget this all-important thing. Then look at verse 16. It comes up again. Let the word dwell in you richly and sing. How do you sing? With thankfulness in your hearts to God. And then in 3.17, the thankfulness theme continues. And he commands us to do everything. How are we to do everything in word and deed? Well, by giving thanks to God the Father through him. Giving thanks regularly in our prayers will train us to see to the reality of God's grace at work in our lives and all around us. And more importantly, as we give thanks to God, it's going to remind us of what's true and what we all too often forget, that we are actually, actually utterly, completely dependent on the Lord. We're to pray persistently, watchfully, thankfully, now Paul, verse 3, says, pray missionally. Look at the text. He says, at the same time, pray also 
for us. What does Paul want them to pray for? He says there in verse 3 that he wants them to pray for the mission. He wants them to pray for his evangelistic efforts in their region and moving on. He wants them to pray for the spread of the gospel. He says, pray, verse 3, that God may open to us a door for the word. In this case, the word is just the message, the gospel. And then he says to declare the mystery of Christ. Now, this mystery is just a technical term in Paul's epistles where Paul's referring to this idea that God did not just come to save the Jews, the Israelites, but he also came to bring salvation to all people and to all nations. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you're here this morning and you've not believed the gospel, I want to encourage you to consider the gospel once again. I want to encourage you to repent of your sins and to put your trust in Christ Jesus. Jesus died on a Roman cross to pay the penalty for your sin. And he rose from the dead to gain victory over your sin and to save you from the wrath that's to come. And to all of us who repent and trust in Jesus, he offers forgiveness and he offers eternal life with him. And if you're still resisting and you're not sure if you should trust the Lord in salvation, I want to encourage you to consider why you are here today. It's quite likely that you're here today because there's someone else in this church or someone else in another church who has been praying for you. God has burdened their heart to pray for you. And because they pray for you, you're probably here. And because they're praying for you, you know what that means? That means that God is seeking you. And so God wants you to seek him. Will you seek him today? Paul understands that Successful gospel enterprises begin with God's initiative in our prayerful alertness to his initiative. Gabe read earlier Acts 16 where Paul is trying to go to one region and it says that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus forbade Paul from going there. But then God opens another door to another region and Paul sees this and so they go to the region of Macedonia to proclaim the gospel. And this is where the gospel was brought to Philippi and it was brought to Thessalonica and Berea and Athens and Corinth. And after all of that enterprise, Acts 19 says that the word of God continued to increase and to prevail mightily. So Paul understood we've got to pray and we've got to pray for God to open doors. And then we've got to pray on alert so that we can see those open doors. Now, notice in 4 verse 3 that Paul says, on account of which, I'm in prison. Because Paul walked through open doors, he actually found himself behind closed doors. He was obliged to take the gospel to the Gentiles, even if it meant he found himself in prison. But the irony is that Paul's imprisonment is actually an open door of gospel opportunity. I love how he tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2 verse 8, I am bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God, it is not bound. 
And then consider also that Paul's imprisonment led to the writing of so many of the wonderful letters that we have. This letter here, along with four other letters, are known as Paul's prison epistles. And these prison epistles have edified and strengthened the church for nearly 2,000 years. Then Paul requests that the Colossians not only pray for open doors, but also for intelligent proclamation. Look at verse 4 at the end where he says, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Now, I think this phrase, when you read it carefully, it's a little confusing, these two phrases. What is he saying here? And uh, if you were to open up the NASB translation, they, they treat it as one phrase. And they translate this as, make it clear in the way that I ought to speak. And I think that's better. That's what Paul is asking prayer for. He's asking for clear proclamation of the gospel. Consider that Paul's daily activity uh, included things like he was daily teaching the gospel, but he was also reasoning with others, and he was seeking to persuade others, and he was constantly defending the gospel. And this ongoing activity in his life meant that he needed clarity so that he knew how to rightly respond to each person and to each situation so as to make the gospel intelligible to his audience. We just celebrated the 500th Reformation anniversary a few years ago. And while Luther's nailing the 95 theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg was the proverbial spark that started the Reformation, the fuel came from Luther's imprisonment. A couple of years later, 1521, he was actually imprisoned in Wartburg Castle, and he was there for 300 days. And in that time, he gave himself to translating the New Testament into the German language. And it was as this translation spread throughout Europe, and as the gospel became clear and intelligible to people because they could read it, that the, the fires of the Reformation blazed as the gospel came with a clear and intelligible word. Luther's imprisonment was an open door of gospel opportunity. Even in prison, Paul himself worked to see the gospel go forth. And Paul's example causes us to step back and ask, do we wait for opportunities to proclaim the gospel? Or do we create opportunities to proclaim the gospel? Do you regularly pray for our missionaries? Or do you labor in prayer for our church to bear evangelistic fruit in our community, in our neighborhoods, and at U of L? I want to exhort you to labor in prayer for unbelievers in your life for whom you feel burdened. It might be that God has given you that burden to pray for that person because he wants you to be the person who is an instrument in their salvation. Persist in prayer, but also persist in creating opportunities to share the gospel with them. Offer to pray for them. This is a great way to just make an inroad to the gospel. How can I pray for you? Tell them how thankful to God you are. And it's such a great way to bring God into the conversation. Or offer to read the Bible with them. Or invite them into your home. And do everything that you can to mess your life with them and to do life with them so that you can create an opportunity to share the gospel. Point two this morning, Paul tells us not only to pray persistently, but also in verse five, to walk in wisdom. 
Look at the text. Colossians 4, 5 says, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. The idea of walk just means to conduct yourself. Paul is saying, make sure that you live wisely among outsiders. And so he's, he's talking about a, a lifestyle and a pattern of life and a habit of life that gives consideration to how one's conduct appears before unbelievers. So we should consider how we conduct ourselves, but we should also consider how much time we give to unbelievers. Look at this qualifying phrase Paul offers here in verse 5. How are we to walk in wisdom? We are to make the best use of the time. We're to, as it says in Ephesians, we are to redeem the time. This verb, redeem the time, is used in Daniel 2, which Lawrence read. And I know it's a long text for him to read, but I want us to, to read that text to see how this verb is used there. Remember that the king, Nebuchadnezzar, he's had these troubling dreams. And so he calls in all the wise men and he says, tell me the content of the dream and tell me the interpretation of the dream. And they're rendered speechless. They don't have the wisdom to figure out uh, the king's dream. And so they start to delay the king, and they start to try to make excuses. And in Daniel 2, verse 8, it says that uh, the king tells them, he accuses them. He says, you're trying to gain time. Trying to gain time. And that's the same verb that's used here in Colossians 4, verse 5. When we're trying to redeem the time, we're trying to buy back the time. We're trying to gain time so that we might have opportunity to please our king. Do you buy up the time? Buying up the time implies that we create opportunities to share the gospel. And think about the wider logic of the passage and consider how persistent prayer for unbelievers and for the mission will motivate us to buy up time. If we are praying for lost souls, then we're going to automatically consider how we're going to share the gospel with them and when we are going to have opportunity to share the gospel with them. Let's go back to this idea in verse 5 of walk in wisdom. What does it mean to walk in wisdom? For Paul, Paul's not saying you need to rely on yourself and you need to pull up yourself by your proverbial bootstraps. Instead, walking in wisdom biblically is just being one who's gladly submitted to God's will and seeking to obey God in all things. Turn back a few pages to Ephesians 5, 16 and 17, and I want you to see the parallel passage here and how Paul follows it up. So if you look at Ephesians 5, Verse 16, he says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. So here's the same idea, making the best use of the time. That's the same verb because the days are evil. And now look what he says in verse 17. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Verse 18, he says, be filled with the spirit. Okay, the following verses, you're to sing and make melody to the Lord with spiritual truth, which implies the word of God. You can turn back to Colossians 4. I want you to see here that for Paul in Ephesians 5, the way to walk in wisdom 
is to understand what the will of the Lord is. And how do we understand what the will of the Lord is? Well, we look to his imperatives. We look to his commands. Look up at Colossians 3, verse 16. You've got the same idea. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. What does that lead to? Teaching and admonishing one another in what? All wisdom. Okay? So we gain wisdom by giving ourselves to the word of God and by gladly obeying God's commands. This is how we walk in wisdom. How many of you guys have seen this phenomenal movie called Interstellar? Uh, where's Todd? Todd, you said it was your favorite movie, and I was the one hooting back here. I was thrilled. It is my favorite movie of the past decade. I love this movie, and one of the central themes in Interstellar is this idea of time. And the lead character, played by Matthew McConaughey, his name is Cooper, he has to leave his children behind in order to travel to not just another planet, but to another galaxy because Earth is dying, and humanity needs to find a new planet where they can live. So Cooper goes on this mission to save humanity. And because he travels so far, right, he traveled to an entire other galaxy, uh, this means that time is very precious. Time is literally, throughout the movie, slipping away. If he doesn't get back, he's never going to see his children again. And worse, if he doesn't get back in time, humanity might die before he returns. And so it's because of his love for his children and his love for humanity that Cooper seeks to buy up and to preserve every single second. At one point, the, the, the tension in the movie really starts to build with the time and, and the background music starts to have a clock ticking. And it just goes tick, tock, tick talking and you feel the urgency of the movie and at one point he's flying down in his ranger to a planet and instead of flying down slowly he he flies at this reckless speed because he's trying to preserve every single second and when they land his co-pilot looks over at him and quite sarcastically she just says that was really smooth cooper and he said no but it was very very efficient you see, Cooper was applying all of his piloting wisdom in order to literally buy back the time. And if he failed, his children and humanity would perish. So how do you fill up your calendar? Do you set aside time to labor in prayer for the conversion of your children, your family, neighbors, co-workers, members of your community? Do you wait for gospel opportunities to come along or do you buy back the time and seek to create gospel opportunities? And how about your obedience? Have you considered that your careful obedience to all of God's commands, ensuring you're conducting yourself in wisdom, that this obedience might actually create a gospel opportunity? Don Whitney put it this way when he talks about our obedience creating opportunities. He said, the most powerful ongoing Christian witness has always been the speaking of God's word by the one living God's word. Do you speak and live God's word? 
One way you might endeavor to uh, prioritize evangelism in your life is just to follow this path to evangelism that we passed out a couple weeks ago. If you don't have this handout, there's more on the back table there. But we want to encourage you to invite your neighbors and your family and unbelievers in your life here to Kimwood and the activities that we're doing. We're trying to create opportunities to share the gospel. One of those is our Advent service. Anna's put together this beautiful invite that's going to be passed out next uh, next Sunday, I want to encourage you to grab a couple and invite people to our Advent service. And then pay attention to the newsletter. We've got more events coming. We're planning later in the winter to do a Christianity Explained. And we've got Easter outreach activities planned because we want to help you create opportunities to share the gospel with your friends and your family and your neighbors. Paul commands the Colossians to pray persistently, to walk wisely. And finally, he commands them to speak with grace. Look at verse 6. He says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. We also want to create opportunities with our grace-giving words. And Paul here gives us three characteristics of our words. They're to be gracious, they're to be salty, and they're to be suitable. Grace in this context carries the idea of being charming or being clever or even being winsome. So to treat someone with grace means to treat them with dignity and respect. And it especially means to show them active kindness with your words. But of course, we can hardly think of the word grace without thinking of God's kind acts towards us in redemption and without thinking of God's continuous operation of his helping grace in our lives every single day. It's interesting if you had the KJV or the NASV, they actually translate this phrase with grace, with grace or in grace. And so they're getting at the idea that I think is right here that God's grace ought to be the controlling influence behind every word that we speak. We want to speak words that are, as Matt D'Amico put it to me this week, they're both in accord with grace and empowered by grace. And let's step back for a minute, because I think it's at this point that the, the logical connection of this whole paragraph becomes a little more clear. Okay? How do we ensure that grace controls our words? Well, I think verse 2 tells us, continue steadfastly, in prayer. As we speak, we need to engage the Lord and we need to engage God's reality and we need to ask that the Lord might cause his kingdom and his name and his fullness to bear upon the situation and more particularly onto the person with whom we are speaking. So our words are to be gracious, they're also to be salty. No doubt Paul intends us with this phrase to be seasoned with salt. He wants us to think back to Jesus' words in Matthew 5, verse 13, where Jesus taught the disciples, you are the salt of the earth. And Jesus there was teaching that he didn't want his disciples to retreat from the world, but instead he wanted them to enter into the world and to engage the world so that their words and that their conduct might be a preservative in the world, that they might pre help preserve the world from the corruption. But salt's not only a preserver, is it? It's also a 
flavor enhancer. I had oatmeal this morning. If you never put salt in your oatmeal, you should do it. It makes it excellent. Uh, one person has quipped about salt. They said, salty speech creates a thirst for listening. Salty speech creates a thirst for listening. We want our speech to be such that it recommends itself to the palates of all who hear us. So our speech is to be gracious, it's to be salty, it's also to be suitable. Paul ends verse 6 by noting that our speech must be suited to the occasion. And why? Notice at the end of the verse he says, so that you may know how to answer each person. Think about what the gospel does. The gospel is not just a set of facts, but the gospel is this lens by which we see all of reality. The gospel explains God's reality, and it makes clear what is important in the world. It makes clear that God indeed is reigning and sitting on his throne. And because the gospel makes reality clear, that means the gospel really can be fit to and made relevant to frankly, any situation. The gospel is always appropriate. George Whitfield was one of the greatest evangelists of the 1700s. One estimate says that he preached over 18,000 times in his lifespan. And people came all over to hear him speak. Uh, one of the people who came to hear him speak regularly was Benjamin Franklin. And now one thing about Benjamin Franklin is Benjamin Franklin was at best a deist and probably an atheist. He had no interest in the gospel. But he would go to hear Whitfield's speech because Whitfield was such a marked speaker. Franklin would remark on how the power of God's grace and how Whitfield's remarkable insights, his wise insights into scripture were so compelling that he had to go and hear him speak. Now, our gifting is probably not going to propel us to a worldwide platform like it did George Whitfield. But we still want to consider how to tune our words and how to tune our conduct to make the grace of God and the gospel of God apparent in all that we see and do. And we not only want to tune our words and conduct to make the gospel clear, but we also want to tune them to make the gospel as palatable as we can. We want our words and our life to be compelling to others. Now, the logic of this passage teaches us that prayer actually causes us not to retreat from the world, but instead to engage the world. And so the question I just want us all to take away today is this. Could it be that we don't win souls for the Lord simply because we're not disciplined to labor in prayer for those souls. This passage encourages us not only to persist in prayer, but also to consider the cumulative effect that prayer and that our life has on unbelievers. We must reach for unbelievers in our prayers, but we also want to preach to unbelievers both with our words and with our conduct. And consider this, if God gave up everything he had himself to make sure salvation would come to us, will he not continue to give us everything we need to ensure that that salvation goes out to others? 
persist in watchful prayer, walk in the wisdom of obedience, speak with the power of God's grace, and create opportunities to share the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, we do ask that you will make us a praying people. Make us a people who are watchful for opportunities and a people who are thankful for your grace operating in our lives. We pray that you will indeed advance your gospel to the nations. We pray for our missionaries sent from Kenwood that you'll make them fruitful, that you'll open doors of opportunity for them to have conversations with neighbors, but also with people in power so that greater opportunity may come for the gospel to be proclaimed where they are. Cause those of us who share the gospel at University of Louisville and those who labor to save those who are perishing right on the streets of downtown, we pray that you'll cause us to be faithful and to bear fruit. And at the same time, we ask that you help us to buy up every opportunity to share the gospel with grace-empowered words and the wisdom of obedient conduct. We pray you will hallow your name, cause your kingdom to come, cause your will to be done. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand with us.